You ever wonder who the other Mary was? I have to admit, I think about her a lot. I, uh, I think, you know, poor woman, this woman probably lived a life full of interests and passions, and yet, poor thing, she gets encumbered throughout history by this dismissive, kind of snarky title, the other Mary. And nobody knows for sure who the, whom the gospel writer Matthew is referring to. There's one tradition that wants to suggest that the other Mary is maybe Jesus' mother. You have to do some complicated biblical math to get there. But by the transitive law of Bible characters, the thinking goes, perhaps the other Mary is none other than the mother of the Lord, who must have had, we assume, quite a falling out with the gospel writer Matthew in order to earn his dismissive title for her. I can tell you exactly how thrilled my mom would be if all of my friends started referring to her as the other Claudia. She would not be happy. But this is how the story goes. According to Matthew's account, an earthquake, an angel, guards passed out for fear, and these two strong women, two Marys, the Magdalene, and the other, whomever she is. She's like the, the anonymous bystander. That's how I like to think of her, the woman who gets a name, but not much more in this story. At least that's the way we tell it a couple thousand years later, even on an Easter like this, unable to gather in our accustomed ways, in our beloved spaces, but many of us stuck in our homes, locked away in our own upper rooms, wherever they may be, cordoned off from one another, not unlike the way that Jesus' early disciples were in the days that immediately followed his death. They were afraid. That's what the texts say. The doors were locked for fear of the authorities. Our fears are different than theirs were, but we are a people living in fear just as they did. Even on the days when we can appreciate this new existence, the gift of a different rhythm, that fear is always there. It's always lurking underneath the surface. And that fear is many things. It's fear of infection, fear of contracting something, passing something along, fear of loss, fear of isolation, fear of dying alone, fear of the world that waits on the other side of this, this infection curve. As for when we euphemistically say, when this is all over, fear of whatever kind of terrifying resurrection may be ours to live in that day. Because resurrection is a it's a painful thing. I mean, let's, let's not mince words. Resurrection is painful because resurrection first requires death. It's the only way to, to get to the empty tomb, and it's not an easy road. St. Paul knew that when he wrote in one of these first sermons about the meaning of resurrection in the book of Romans. Do you not know, he said, do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Not into his resurrection, at least not at first. That's not where Paul starts. No, he says our first act of belonging to Christ comes when we dare to give ourselves over to the power of death. And death is a powerful thing. I mean, we know that, right? It's like, it's, it's like the earthquake in Matthew's gospel. It shakes everything up. Professional soldiers quake in fear and two women raise their scared little heads above the, above the aftermath looking around like frightened rabbits. What has happened? Paul says, do you not know that we who follow in the name of the risen one, first of all, fundamentally, belong to his death. We belong to his, to his fear to his anguish, to his, to his suffering, what the, what the tradition calls his, his passion, his ability to undergo, his ability to endure, his ability simply to, 
take it into his body, absorb it, metabolize somehow the suffering of an entire people, an entire race, as he hangs there helpless on this instrument of Roman torture. Death is the first thing, Paul says. Death is actually the first thing that makes us Christians. And that's what baptism is, Paul suggests. It's a dress rehearsal, if you like. It's a ritual death. I mean, do not be fooled by the calm and placid waters of a, of a baptismal font. We're playing with fire here. Something, we say, something dies in baptism. Paul refers to that thing as sin. I want to suggest that sometimes it's be maybe better understood as something that looks a little bit more like selfishness or ego, narcissism, a kind of relentless individualism, the ability, the, the privilege, if you like, to answer only to me and to the ones I choose to answer to, to put my needs first, to care about my own health, my well-being, my happiness above all else. That's, Paul says, that's what dies in baptism. He says that when you come up out of the water, that old world of individual survival and, and privilege is gone. There's no going back, right? Because you belong to the entire world now, just as Christ did on the cross. You belong to the body of Christ, Paul says, and that reality should cause you to quake with fear because belonging to Christ's body, belonging no longer to me myself alone, but to something weird and amorphous and, and expansive, universal like that, that belonging impacts how I choose to spend the only stuff I've got, right? My energy, my choices, my loves and desires, my time, my body itself. That's all I have. So if I've already died somehow, if I'm living some kind of second life, if some, some kind of eternal life, some kind of resurrected existence, as Paul suggests, if that's true, then why is this life why is this Easter, why is this human existence so gosh darn hard so much of the time? Why is it so painful and complicated? If I'm already living some kind of resurrected life, as Paul suggests, I mean, why isn't this thing any easier? I don't ask these questions rhetorically. People do not join religions in order to suffer, right? We don't volunteer for stuff that ends up making our lives more difficult. If belonging to the body of Christ does not somehow significantly increase my well-being, I don't know that there's much point. I mean, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot easier, to be perfectly honest, it's easier to shut myself up in my 550-square-foot apartment and eat whatever I want and read whatever I want to read and watch whatever kind of trash TV serves to distract me from my fear and my anxiety. I mean, I'm an introvert, right? So my, my vision of blissful self-dependence and, you know, this kind of whole COVID stay-at-home thing is kind of perfect, perfectly designed to give me the thing that I think I want, which is this kind of, you know, beautifully, I mean, in this case, governmentally imposed hermitage. I don't know what an, what an extrovert's version of blissful independence is, a cocktail party that never ends, or everybody wants to talk to you, eternal coffee hour. I mean, that thought makes me shudder with fear. But the point is this. It is easier for me to isolate it is easier for me to pull away and rely on my two feet and my own gumption and make my own way through life on my own. That's my fantasy, that I can somehow do this thing on my own, that I am ultimately in control of my life and my choices, and that's hubris, 
and that's ego and narcissism, that's the sin that Paul claims is actually already dead in me. It died the moment that my dad and my godmother, Pastor Sue, dunked me into the heavy, heavily chlorinated waters of an evangelical church baptismal dunk tank. Three times I went down, right? The name of the Father, Kunk. The name of the Son, Kunk. The name of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, that's it. That's your death, Nathan. That's the end of the old you and the beginning of something new. And if a little bit of water got up your nose and started burning, all the better, because it's supposed to hurt. Baptism is meant, I think, to hurt you. It's supposed to sting because it comes, I mean, it comes with a little bit of regret, I think, the wistful sense that things were actually a heck of a lot easier before the whole Jesus thing came crashing into my life and messed everything up. I mean, I am a, I'm kind of a reluctant Christian, even on my best days. This tradition is beautiful. Sometimes it's fun and a little bit silly. It is also filled with deep violence and pain. In the name of Jesus, people I love, people you love, some of you who are sitting at home listening to this stuff, right? I mean, we have been bullied and persecuted and maligned in the name of Jesus Christ and his church. So I don't think we have any like rose-tinted glasses when it comes to the, the power and the promise of something as weird and threatening as resurrection. I mean, I have, I have very little confidence in the eternal power of spring and hope or love conquering all. I'm not sure love does conquer all. I know love makes everything a heck of a lot harder. So that's what I'm reckoning with. Love is hard. In some ways, love is harder in these weird socially distanced days when there's so much fear and so much potential for contagion and so much that threatens our basic understanding of what it means to participate in a well-ordered society. And maybe there is a kind of strange and surprising gift in that, especially when it comes to a, a beloved holiday like Easter Sunday. I mean, we're not gonna, we're not gonna stuff ourselves in church tomorrow, cheek by jowl in our Easter finery. We're not gonna hear a brass band and timpani and a 60 voice choir singing Jesus Christ is risen today. There's gonna to be one soloist and she's pretty amazing, but she is one voice, one woman's voice ringing out in the vastness of an empty cathedral. And maybe that puts you in mind of another Easter, actually. Maybe that looks a little bit more like the first Easter. For me, at least, hers is the voice of the other Mary that forgotten Mary, right? The one who is less famous, less honored than the Magdalene and the mother. Nobody ever made the other Mary a saint. But maybe this Easter, 2,000 years after the fact, maybe this is her moment to shine. Because the other Mary has a story to tell too. And it's a, it's a slightly different story than the Easter story that we all think we know. In the other Mary's story, she finds the empty tomb, she finds the angel who gives her the message, and then as she and her companion are fleeing that place in fear. Remember, they've, they've just seen two policemen knocked out, right? They, they know the authorities are on their way. They can hear the sirens. So they're ski-daddling it back to the safe house in Galilee. And this stranger appears before them. He greets them. And in an instant, they know him. Matthew says, they grabbed a hold of his feet. I love that detail. They grabbed his feet in an act of desperation and fear and anguish, they grab hold of the one thing they know for certain, this is the guy we love. And they worshiped him. 
That's it, right? That is the first Easter. Three people, two people, actually two women, and then the one who suddenly comes among them unbidden and is recognized by the sound of his voice and the shape of his foot and the power of his love. This is not a story about a grand church liturgy with all the trimmings. It's a story about intimacy and loss and about recognition and surrender. It's a story about bodies because resurrection is always in the first and in the last about our bodies. Our body is the thing that dies and it's my body, the tradition insists, it's my body that gets raised. A few days ago, I had the weird experience of giving last rites to a beloved parishioner on FaceTime. I was in my apartment, they were in the hospital. This is a woman who's been struggling with cancer for many years. Last December, we actually got to get together just before Christmas. She and her partner invited me over for brunch. We shared a meal, just the three of us, as Jesus and his friends must have done countless times. We laughed, told a couple off-color stories. And then when it came time to talk about my friend's funeral, we wept together because we knew this might be the last time. And it was the last time, four days ago, in a hospital room with her beloved companion of 25 years by her side. We FaceTimed, and I prayed the prayers that Episcopal priests pray over somebody who is about to die. Into your hands, O merciful Savior, we commend your servant. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a sheep of your own fold, a lamb of your own flock, a soul of your own redeeming. That's usually the place where I take a little bit of holy oil on my thumb, and I anoint the forehead and the hands and sometimes the feet, if I can get to them, because that's a moment about intimacy. It's a way of, of saying to a beloved child of God in her last moments, you are known and you are loved. And I couldn't do that on Tuesday. I could, I could say the words, but I couldn't touch her. I couldn't touch her forehead and her hands and her feet in the way that I've been trained to do, in the way that I wanted to. And that was hard for me. I felt the distance and the loss in a much more visceral way than I ever have. But I also saw something else, something that I, I don't think I would have seen otherwise. I saw it through my phone, through the miracle of this technology that's affording us in these strange days, because it was like the original Easter, right? Two women by themselves who love one another deeply who are preparing to enter the tomb. And the love that has flown between these two particular women, a, a love that has bound them together for decades, that was the love that brought the presence of Christ to life in that hotel, in that hospital room. They have fought for one another. They have protected one another. They've walked a difficult road as lovers and companions and advocates and friends. And even the looming reality of death could not shake their passion and their commitment. That, to me, is the story of the other Mary. I think maybe it's the real Easter story. It's a story about the love that all we other Marys of the world understand, because we've experienced it. That kind of love, we say, is strong as death. That passion is fierce as the grave. So whatever it is that dies in us, when we give ourselves over to the power of that love, whether it comes through baptism or marriage or child rearing or through friendships that take us into the deepest places of our hearts, however and whenever we find that love, I think that's our doorway, right? That's the doorway 
into the fierceness of human love that death and resurrection ask of us, maybe even require of us. Something dies in me when love washes over me. I go down into the waters of death itself and I come back up a different person. That is the life of the other Mary, perhaps lost to history, but known to our spouses and our neighbors and our friends and lovers, our companions and the strangers that we meet along the way. Somehow we are known deeply and completely by the beloved one himself who comes in countless guises, the stranger with a thousand faces, the thing is, we don't, we don't have to be in church to experience that. We don't even have to consider ourselves Christians. All we have to do is trust these bodies, which were created for human connection, created for giving and receiving love, these bodies that get knit up into love itself at the last. And something, something remains. When life itself is gone from us, there's this imprint of fierce passion that lingers behind and which the ancient narratives maintain will come back, cascading, boomeranging, echoing back, reanimating us in some powerful and weird way at the end of all things, when everything becomes complete, when the work of this tired old world is finished and Christ returns in glory to take everything broken everything used and abused, everything lost and maligned and thrown away and forgotten, every Mary and every other Mary, when Christ returns to bring it all back and redeems it all, makes all of it beautiful and whole and sound, resurrected at last, love that is finally and triumphantly whole once again. <laughs>